Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here at William & Mary. We'll begin with a reading from Matthew chapter 22 and a prayer. Then the Pharisees went off and plotted how they might entrap Jesus in speech. They sent their disciples to him with a Herodian, saying, Teacher, we know that you are a truthful man, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and you are not concerned with anyone's opinion, for you do not regard a person's status. Tell us, then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar, or not? Knowing their malice, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the census tax. Then they handed him the Roman coin. He said to them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. At that he said to them, Then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that everything is yours. We ask you now to pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that we, with your servants and our teachers, St. Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Augustine of Hippo, may have a greater understanding of the empires of this earth and of your heavenly kingdom. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Heaven and Earth, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <coughs> This evening's Thomistic Institute lecture is titled The Christian Responses of St. Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Augustine of Hippo to the Roman Empire. And we're beginning with this passage from Matthew chapter 22 for a couple of reasons. One, it's providential that in the Catholic Church yesterday, Sunday, the 29th Sunday of the ordinary time of the year, this very gospel was proclaimed, the gospel about Caesar's tax. So is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not? And so this then is, in a sense, the driving good news, and that St. Augustine and St. Gregory of Nazianzus uh, dealt with this passage in different ways. And so, uh, and then I was invited specifically to speak about Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo in looking at this comparison on the Roman Empire. The thesis of this lecture is that the Christian responses of Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo in different ways show a more all-encompassing universal mission than what the Roman Empire could ever attain and provide direct involvement in how the empire and subsequent political entities should be conducted. Again, that when you look with St. Gregory and St. Augustine on the Roman Empire, you see that God is providing a more all-encompassing universal sense than what the Roman Empire could ever actually put forth or attain, and that this all-encompassing Christian vision actually has something to say about the Roman Empire and the various states of our own day. Right, so we're going to begin with the Christian response of St. Gregory of Nazianzus to the Roman Empire. Sometimes people in political theory will look east and they'll choose Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius died in 339, and he, of course, is called the father of church history because of his great ecclesiastical history 
and he wrote the praises of Emperor Constantine, and various people then will talk about a Eusebian political view, and then the emphasis or the uh, influence of a Eusebian political uh, view concerning empire and church. Rather than choosing Eusebius, I'm choosing Gregory of Nazianzus, who in the Eastern tradition is called the theologian. Okay, so that Gregory of Nazianzus is someone who lived a little bit later in the fourth century. He died around the year 390, and he is commonly known today as one of the three Cappadocian fathers. Cappadocia is a particular region in modern-day Turkey, uh, along with the one that he claimed as his best friend, St. Basil of Caesarea, and St. Basil's one of St. Basil's brothers, Gregory of Nyssa. Well, Gregory of Nazianzus has a lot to say about a Christian response to the Roman Empire, and he, I think, would be a, a different way of comparing East and West, and I want to emphasize more the commonality between Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo as these particularly two extremely learned responses to the empire, one Greek, one Latin, both with many connections, okay, both as orators who knew the history very well and who was responding to particular threats and also particular opportunities within the Roman Empire. Now, uh, I'm beginning this with a controversial point, and I'd like to go to Susanna Elm, who's the Distinguished Professor of History in Ancient Greek and Roman Studies at UC Berkeley. In 2012, she published a, a very learned monograph titled Sons of Hellenism, Fathers of the Church, Emperor Julian, Gregory of Nazianzus, and the Vision of Rome. Elm really is a pioneer in a comparative study of Julian, whom Christians usually call the apostate, and Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, and she wants to see how the two of them are cut from the same cloth that they have competing visions of, of Rome, which is Greek Rome, by the way, and that there is much, much, much more, the, the two of them have much, much more in common than actually opposed. Okay, so listen to how Elm begins her book. This is a book about two powerful, enduring, and competing visions of universalism in the fourth century, Christianity and the Roman Empire. Yet I will argue that these visions were in fact one, since Christianity was essentially Roman. Christianity's universalism lasted because it was, from the beginning, deeply enmeshed in the foundational ideologies granting Rome's supremacy. In the crucial 4th century of imperial patronage and religious conflict, Christian universalism was even more profoundly influenced by those ancient Roman ideological foundations. The book demonstrates these claims through the figures of one of Rome's ancient foundation's defenders, the pagan emperor Julian the Apostate, and one of Julian's Christian attackers, Gregory of Nazianzus. Focusing on these protagonists and their vision of Greek Rome, the book engages these questions. And the first question is, what made Christianity last? Now, Elm provides many learned and remarkable insights in her book, which I highly recommend. I also find this opening premise deeply problematic. Yes, Christianity is a historical religion, and there was something providential about the timing and place of the Incarnation that the Word was made flesh at a particular time, at a particular place. And you can think about how the Roman Empire is so important in, say, St. Luke's narration of the Gospel. Okay, So Caesar Augustus is, is, the, is the ruler. Uh, 
you know, so the time and the place. And so I grant that. Now, Gregory himself argues that, uh, um, that there is something providential there. But that providential timing and place was due more directly to God's election of a different people. And that's not the Romans, but Israel. The most insignificant of peoples, according to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, It was not because you are more numerous than all the peoples that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you are really the smallest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you, and because of his fidelity to the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. Um, right, so this is where uh, I think that there's something inherent in Christianity that is completely dependent upon the call of Abraham, Genesis 12, and then the movement of Abraham to the Holy Land, and the people who are the descendants of Abraham. And Abraham lived long before the Roman Empire began. And I think it's just very important to see that this is something essential in Christianity. And I think Gregory of Nazianzus and of Augustine of Hippo, both in different ways, um, are able within the midst of the Roman Empire to see that their foundation is from God, who elected a people long before the Roman Empire, and that the Roman Empire provides a particular basis, uh, a particular uh, historical fact in which they are operating and which they um, are able to, to judge, actually, things that are good and things that are bad, things that are right and things that are wrong. And they're even able to tell emperors apart, okay? So that they, um, that they have a sense based upon God you know, the Lord's is the earth in its fullness, the world and all its peoples, Psalm 24. <coughs> that, that Gregory of Nazianzus had this keen sense of how God was the creator, that he created the angels, that he created, you know, things invisible besides creating things visible. And so this is where it's a, a very different sense of having something that is imminent within the Roman Empire, Okay. And this is where, of course, I've, uh, I'm giving a theological presentation. Well, I think Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo are giving theological presentations. And I think in order to be, uh, to be just to hear Gregory of Nazianzus, that we actually listen to him, and we can see many, many, many connections between him and this contemporary, they studied together in Athens, after all, Julian, uh, but Julian himself, was a Christian. And when he became an emperor uh, as an apostate, he wanted the pagan priests to be more like Christians. Okay? So this is where that Julian wanted to have a revival of pagan priesthood. And he says, come on, look at these Galileans. Julian would not call Christians Christians. Okay? Julian, in 362, forbade Christians from teaching the classics. And Julian then... Uh, had these different kinds of persecutions. He loved animal sacrifice. He wanted the Jewish people to rebuild the temple because of their special love for animal sacrifice, and he knew that Christians would be very much alarmed by that. Uh, well, that Gregory of Nazianzus then wanted to respond to Julian uh, and the Roman Empire for going back to the word. Okay? So the Greek word for word is logos. And uh, if you go back to, uh, to, uh, to, 
to Gregory of Nazianzus, he's constantly understanding everything through the Logos. Okay, the Logos, the Word, the reason. Uh, through the Logos, uh, God the Father made all things. That Logos was made flesh. Okay, so then how, uh, rather than saying that Christianity is essentially Roman, actually, perhaps it's the Roman Empire that piggybacked on Christianity and lasted so long in the East. So it was until 1453 that the Roman Empire continued until Constantinople fell to the Turks. All right, so this is where uh, I want us to be able to appreciate a comparison between Gregory and Julian the Apostate. Uh, so Emperor Julian became emperor in 361, and then he was cut down on the Persian battlefield in June of 363. Okay, so he did not have a long reign, uh, but it was extremely disturbing for Christians. And all sorts of Christians wrote against Julian. Uh, St. Ephraim the Syrian apparently saw Julian's body after his death. Okay? Uh, and so he has his hymns against Julian. Gregory of Nazianzus, according to Susanna Elm's very learned comparison, was having this uh, campaign in his writings against Julian. Uh, so if you look at the first six orations, the explicit invectives against Julian are orations four and five. Okay, so, so this is where that Gregory needed to respond and to be able to say that, that Christians then uh, were actually the, the, the best citizens uh, because we were more attuned to the word, that we were actually proclaiming the word. Right, so this is where uh, uh, with Gregory of Nazianzus, you see a different view of what it means to be, uh, to be Romans. Okay. Um, a little side note, sometimes people uh, don't understand this, that if you see the word Greek uh, written by a Greek Christian of the period, that means pagan. Okay? So Greek fathers who speak of the Greeks are speaking of pagans. It follows 1 Corinthians. Uh, so St. Paul's understanding, of course, he's writing in Greek, uh, about Greek or Jew, okay? So Greek there means a pagan. And, and this is where, going through the 15th century, that the Christians of the Roman Empire in Greek would call themselves chromaioi, okay? In Greek, the Romans, All right? So, so this is where, if you talk about uh, just simply being Greek, uh, that can sound pagan. For Gregor of Nazianzus, he knew pagan literature extremely well. Uh, he imitated all sorts of poets uh, of antiquity, and he wanted to be able to show people that Christians were smart, and that Christians could do uh, what the pagans did, but better. Okay, so because we had Jesus. We have the Word made flesh. Right, so if you look at the first of the two invectives against Julian the Apostate, uh, look at how Julian, sorry, look how Gregory of Nazianzus is relativizing certain claims by Julian. So he says, is speaking Greek thy exclusive right? Pray tell me, are not the letters of the alphabet the invention of the Phoenicians, or as others say of the Egyptians, or of those yet wiser than they, the Hebrews? If they believe that the law was engraved by God upon divinely inscribed tables of stone, is the Attic language thy right? to calculate sums and to count, to reckon on the fingers, weights, and measures, and before all these tactics and military rules, to whom do they belong? Do they not to the Eubaeans, since Palamedes, 
was an Ubayan, that inventor of many things, and thereby becoming an object of jealousy and having to pay the penalty of his cleverness, condemned to death by those who fought against Troy? What, pray, if Egyptians, Phoenicians, and Hebrews are those whom we employ in common for our own education, supposing the natives of Eubea should make a claim, according to the rule thou hast laid down, for the things specially belonging to themselves, what in the world shall we do? Again, Gregory is relativizing a particular imperial claim and say, come on, look at world history. Okay, there is a world, there is a history besides this empire that is passing away. Okay, and by the way, that emperor had passed away. Julian died on the battlefield. Right? Uh, and so Gregory of Nazianzus is just wanting people to see, um, and he's making a particularly Christian claim. Yes, you can repeatedly make comparisons between claims of his contemporaries, such as Julian, who wanted to be the model philosopher emperor. Yes, um, but just know that Gregory has a wider claim, and it's a particularly Christian claim that is not completely dependent upon the Roman Empire. All right, now, also, uh, Gregory is one of the, according to a Byzantine tradition, Gregory calls Origen the whetstone of us all. Uh, so Origen uh, was the most influential scriptural exegete of the third century. He died either in 253 or 254. He wrote a letter to Gregory, which very well may be Gregory the Wonder Worker, about the Egyptian gold. Have you heard about this? It was very influential in patristic literature after Origen. So this is where uh, you have uh, the, the, the Hebrews leaving Egypt. What does God do? God um, allows the Hebrews to take the gold of Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians said, go away, go away from us. Here, take this, take that, okay? Take the other thing, okay? Because of the different plagues. And so they were going to go. Well, so Origen then says, that think of the gold from Egypt and how gold can be used for worship. The question is then, are you going to use it for right worship, orthodox worship, or are you going to use it for false worship? What do you think the golden calf was made from? The gold of Egypt. Okay? You know, or um, you think about the different kinds of, of, of temples that were made to false gods. But then, what about the tabernacle of the Lord? Okay, so the question is, um, when you take knowledge, okay, when you take anything that is true from various kinds of people, uh, uh, that in some sense belongs to you who belong to God. Okay, so, so everything that is true belongs to God. And then you, if you are in God, you can receive all of that. The question is, what do you do with it? Right? So this is a general principle that you can find in many different fathers of the church, the Egyptian gold. And, and how I think Gregor Nazianzus is having a particular use of it. And so this is where, <coughs> uh, you know, that, um, uh, uh, to be able to, to enjoy the roses and avoid the thorns. Okay? So to, to be able to see how all of this is available. Um, uh, because again, we have the Logos. And Gregor of Nazianzus, in his Logoi, in his various words, wanted to be able to, to help people see in the midst of the Roman Empire that there is a Logos that is higher uh, than all the Roman Empire. And by the way, it tells us something about what the Roman Empire should be. All right, so uh, I'd like to give you an example of this from Oration 43 in Praise of the Great Basil.
So I mentioned that Greg of Nazianzus claimed Basil as his best friend. He wrote this funeral oration on Basil probably three years after Basil died. And uh, he recounts Basil's life. In chapter 50, he says that, uh, that Basil had a particular interaction with a Roman prefect. And, and he, he had, Basil had parousia. Okay, so parousia is that frankness, boldness, and speech. And so, you know, speaking truth to power. So, uh, so Greg of Nazianza says this of Basil. Amazed at this language, the prefect said, no one has ever yet spoken this, and with such boldness, to Modestus. Okay, he's Modestus. Why, perhaps, said Basil, you have not met, you have not met with a bishop. Why, perhaps, you know, no one has spoken like this to Modestus. Why, perhaps, you have not met with a bishop. Okay, that's a great line. <laughs> because that's what a bishop should do. A bishop should especially lead the people in speaking truth to power, to have that frankness, boldness, and speech. Basil, the great, is one who, who exemplifies that. Um, uh, so then Gregory, he loves language. So listen to this. Why, perhaps, said Basil, you have not met with a bishop, or in his defense of such interest, he would have used precisely the same language. For we are modest in general and submissive to everyone according to the precept of our law. Okay? Remember, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay? So, uh, uh, submissive to everyone according to the precept of our law. Yet we may not treat with haughtiness even any ordinary person to say nothing of so great a potentate. But where the interests of God are at stake, we care for nothing else and make these our sole object. Fire and sword and wild beasts and rakes which tear the flesh, we revel in and fear them not. You may further insult and threaten us, and do whatever you will to the full extent of your power. The emperor himself may hear this, that neither by violence nor persuasion will you bring us to make common cause with impiety, not even though your threats become still more terrible. Okay? Well, the emperor does come to town, it's emperor violence, and he comes into the church during the sacred liturgy. Gregor Nazianzus in chapter 52 says, Emperor Valens entered the church attended by the whole of his train. Emperor Valens was a heretic. Okay? It was the festival of the Epiphany, and the church was crowded, and by taking his place among the people, he made a profession of unity. The occurrence is not to be lightly passed over. Upon his entrance, he was struck by the thundering roll of the psalms, by the sea of heads of the congregation, and by the angelic rather than human order which pervaded the sanctuary and its precincts, precincts, while Basil presided over his people, standing erect, as the scriptures say of Samuel, with body and eyes and mind undisturbed, as if nothing new had happened but fixed upon God in the sanctuary, as if, so to say, he had been a statue, while his ministers stood around him in fear and reverence. At this sight, and it was indeed a sight unparalleled, overcome by human weakness, his eyes were affected with dimness and giddiness, his mind with dread. This was as yet unnoticed by most people, but when he had to offer the gifts of the table of God, which he must needs do himself, since no one would, as usual, assist him, because it was uncertain whether Basil would admit him, his feelings were revealed, for he, the emperor, was staggering, and had not someone in the sanctuary reached out a hand to steady his tottering steps, he would have sunk to the ground in a lamentable, lamentable fall. So much for this. Okay? So Gregory's point was that the emperor was overawed by Basil the bishop. Okay? Usually, people are to be overawed at emperors. Okay, now, Gregory received the sea of Constantinople from Emperor Theodosius, who was this Catholic emperor who, uh, who um, had the 
Constantinople won, so that's the Second Ecumenical Council in 381. But it doesn't mean that Gregory agreed with Theodosius on everything. Uh, so, for example, Gregory preached Oration 37 to try to help uh, women uh, who had been afflicted by the marriage laws of the, of the empire. And in a letter, letter epistle, epistle 144, Gregory calls divorce completely disagreeable with our laws, even if those of the Romans, that is of the empire, judge otherwise. Okay? So this is where that you just think, oh, marriage. Okay? And how Gregory Nazianzus was one who protested the imperial laws as being especially unfair to women. Okay? Uh, and then also that they just were not correct according to the intention of the creator. So, so these would be some examples from Gregory and his responses to the Roman Empire, particularly in response to Susanna Elm's book. All right. Now, what I want to do is to go to Augustine of Hippo, the Christian response of Augustine of Hippo to the Roman Empire. More people are familiar with Augustine uh, and the responses of Augustine to the Roman Empire. Um, he, just a little bit about his background, he rose to the imperial court in Milan. Okay, so he was an imperial orator, and he gave it up in 386. So after he had that grace of conversion in the, in the garden, so the um, take and read, take and read, um, he gave up being the imperial orator. Um, he thought that he was just selling lies. Okay, so that rhetoric was just a way of trying to persuade people whether things were, whether things were true or not. And he was tired of it. And he thought that this, uh, this should all go away. So then he went to retreat at Casa to prepare to be baptized in Milan, which he did on April 24, 387. Now I want to choose two of St. Augustine's writings <coughs> as points of comparison. One not so well known, and the other extremely well known, but, uh, but very much contested. The one that's not so well known is one of his hundreds letters, uh, one of the hundreds of letters preserved in the Epistolary Correspondence of Augustine. And that's Epistle 153, his letter to Macedonius and imper the Imperial Vicar of Africa in 413 to 414. Okay, and then the other one is City of God. Okay, so I want to have a few comments on City of God. But first, uh, Macedonius. Who was Macedonius? Well, Imperial Vicar of Africa. He was a Catholic who was devoted to Augustine, and Augustine uh, had written to Macedonius to plea uh, not to administer the death penalty. Okay? And uh, so there was a particular death penalty case, and Augustine asked for the criminal's life to be spared, and Macedonius granted that request. But he wanted to learn more from Augustine why Augustine would ask for such leniency. So this is what Augustine, so Augustine says many things. Augustine, to get to the quick of it, he basically says that a state has the right to have an execution of a criminal for particular reasons, but as Christians, we cannot forget mercy. Okay, so I want you to hear a few passages from his Epistle 153. In no way, then, do we approve of the sins that we want to be, that we want to be corrected, nor do we want the wrongdoing to go unpunished because we find it pleasing. Rather, having compassion for the person and detesting the sin or crime, the more we are displeased by the sin, the less we want the sinful person to perish without having been corrected. Okay? So, he really wants repentance. That's, that's the point. He continues, For it is easy and natural to hate evil persons because they are evil, but it is rare and holy to love those same persons 
because they are human beings. Thus, in one person, you at the same time both blame the sin and approve the nature, and for this reason you more justly hate the sin, because it defiles the nature that you love. He, therefore, who punishes the crime in order to set free the human being is bound to another person as a companion, not in injustice, but in humanity. Okay? He, therefore, who punishes the crime in order to set free the human being is bound to another person as a companion, not in injustice, but in humanity. There is no other place for correcting our conduct save in this life. For after this life, each person will have what he earned for himself in this life. And so out of love for the human race, we are compelled to intercede on behalf of the guilty, lest they end this life through punishment, so that when it is ended, they cannot have an end to their punishment. Meaning, everlasting punishment. And Augustine didn't want anybody to go to hell. Right? Sometimes people have uh, particular interpretations of Augustine, that Augustine wants a full hell. Okay? Uh, really, this is said. Um, Augustine, as a pastor, my favorite line in one of his, uh, that's, that you find in one of his sermons is he says to the people, I don't want to be saved without you. Like he gave, he wanted to give his whole life over for people's salvation. Okay? Um, right, so St. Augustine continues a little bit later in, the, in this letter to Macedonius. For when the Jews brought to Christ the Lord the woman caught in adultery and said to test him that the law commanded that she should be stoned, they then asked him what he himself commanded in her regard. He answered them, Let whoever of you is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. John 8. Nor did he in this way show his disapproval of the law that commanded that those guilty of such a sin be put to death. Okay? He didn't say that was a bad law. He just said, you know, let you without sin be the first to do that. But by frightening them, he called back to mercy those by whose judgment she could have been put to death. I suspect that if her husband was also present and was asking that the fidelity of his bed be vindicated, once he heard, once he heard these words of the Lord, he was filled with fear and turned his mind away from the desire for vengeance to the will to pardon. For how was her accuser not warned not to pursue the injuries he suffered when the judges themselves were forbidden to exact punishment, though in punishing the adulteress they were not driven to sanctify the personal pain but the law? Okay, so Augustine is imagining the husband who had been the one violated by the adulterous woman, that he, upon hearing the Lord's words, would not want her to be stoned. And then one final line from this, God is pleased with a sacrifice of mercy. For if he were not merciful to sinners, there would be no good people. I'll repeat. God is pleased with the sacrifice of mercy. For if he were not merciful to sinners, there would be no good people. All right? That is an Augustine teaching on grace in a nutshell. All right, so uh, City of God. City of God uh, was begun in early 413, dedicated to Marcellinus. Marcellinus was the Roman who presided over the 411 Conference of Carthage, where it was this huge gathering of hundreds of Catholic and Donatist bishops, and it was a Roman imperial gathering. Okay, so at different times, the empire had been consulted on the Donatist question in North Africa, and the empire repeatedly sided against the Donatists in favor of the Catholic Church. And... And so Marcellinus uh, was a Catholic, and yes, the conference sided in favor of the Catholic Church. And uh, the thing about it was uh, Marcellinus became a dear friend of Augustine's, 
and uh, he was hated by various people. He was charged with a conspiracy, and he was executed on September 13, 413. Emperor Honorius vindicated him the following year. Now, it's important to keep this in mind because when Augustine writes his preface to City of God, he does not realize that the one to whom he writes this will be killed by the state in a matter of months. Okay? So it was particularly events later in the year, uh, the, in the summer. Uh, and so this is, and then you just think about the whole purpose of the city of God and that the recipient of this was going to be killed by the state. Augustine begins, The glorious city of God is my theme in this work, which you, my dearest son Marcellinus, suggested, and which is due to you by my promise. I have undertaken its defense against those who prefer their own gods to the founder of the city, a city surpassingly glorious, whether we view it as as it still lives by faith in this fleeting course of time, and sojourns as a stranger in the midst of the ungodly, or as it shall dwell in the fixed stability of its eternal seat, which it now patiently waits for, expecting until righteousness shall return unto judgment, and it obtains by virtue of its excellence, final victory, and perfect peace. Okay, so I want to pause here. Did you see the double contrast? So the first contrast is between the glorious city of God and those who prefer their own gods, okay, so in what's called the earthly city. But the city of God itself has a comparison. There are two states to the city of God. The state of that journeying, okay, so you could say in via or in, in spe, so along the way or in hope. And then the city of God at rest, okay, in re, in the reality, uh, up there in heaven. So Augustine then is making actually a double comparison, a comparison between the earthly city, city of God, but then also within the city of God, a double compa a comparison of the city of God journeying and the city of God at rest. Because, by the way, all those who are in the city of God were once in their earthly city, and all those who are traveling in the present state of the city of God on earth may actually return to the earthly city. Okay, so then... Augustine wants to emphasize that city of God at rest where you have the victory and perfect peace. So he goes back to his writing, This is a great and arduous work, but God is my helper, for I am, for I am aware what ability is requisite to persuade the proud how great is the virtue of humility, which raises us, not by a quite human arrogance, but by a divine grace, above all earthly dignities that totter on the shifting scene. For the king and founder of the city of which we speak has in scripture uttered to his people a dictum of the divine law in these words, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so this proverb, by the way, Augustine says in book three of On Christian Teaching, that there is nearly no page of sacred scripture on which it is not said, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, so if you had to, if you had to sum up scripture in one phrase for Augustine, that would be a good phrase. Okay. Now, Augustine continues, but this, which is God's prerogative, the inflated ambition of a proud spirit also affects, and dearly loves that this be numbered among its attributes to, now he's quoting Virgil's Aeneid, to show pity to the humbled soul and crush the sons of pride. So even within the, the Roman literature, you have a sense of the difference between pride and humility. And so uh, Augustine wants the Romans, wants people to know their history, and to, you know, to know the history of the world, their own history, um, and to know what God says in the Bible. Okay, so Augustine continues, And therefore, as the plan of this work we have undertaken requires, and as occasion offers, 
we must speak also of the earthly city, which, though it be mistress of the nations, is itself ruled by its lust of rule. Okay? So that the earthly city is ruled by its lust for rule. Okay. Now, City of God has 22 books. The first part of it is basically an apology. So 1 through 10, books 1 through 10. Books 1 through 5 are an apology, a defense of uh, the Christian religion against uh, the Roman sense of God's helping people during this life on earth. And then books 6 through 10, uh, a defense, an apology of the Christian religion against the pagan ways of thinking about the gods being helpful after death. After that first part, then you have books 11 through 22, and then you have that one more of a, of a synthetic development, which is divided into three subparts. So you have the beginning of the city of God, uh, books 11 through 14, its concourse, books 15 through 18, and then the ends, uh, books 19 through 22. So he compares the city of God with the earthly city, and he has a preference for praising the city of God. I want us to hear one uh, selection, and then we'll have a conclusion and time for Q&A. So this selection is from the end of book 14. All right, so book 14 is the end of that first part of the beginning of the two cities, and particularly in praise of the city of God. He says, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the, one who seek, for the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory, the other says to its God, You are my glory, and the lifter up of my head. In the one, the princes and the nations that subdues are ruled by the love of ruling, in the other, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying, while the former take thought for all. The one delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other says to its God, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And therefore the wise men of the one city, living according to men, have sought for profit to their own bodies or souls, or both. And those who have known God glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, that is, glorying in their own wisdom and being possessed by pride. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed feasts and creeping things. For they were either leaders or followers of the people in adoring images and worship and serve the, the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. The Romans 1. But in the other city there is no human wisdom but only godliness, which offers due worship to the true God, and looks for its reward in the society of the saints, of holy angels, as well as holy men, that God may be all in all. Again, the thesis of this lecture, the Christian responses of Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo in different ways show a more all-encompassing universal mission than what the Roman Empire could ever attain and provide direct involvement in how the empire and subsequent political entities should be conducted. Now, finally then, um, to use this with that passage from Matthew chapter 22, I want us to first consider Gregory's Oration 34 on the arrival of the Egyptians to Constantinople, which happened in the year 380. So after calling to mind biblical scenes such as Genesis and Joseph there feeding the multitudes, Gregory preaches, 
having as his right rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you have offered to God the things that are God's. And after feeding the people with your cargoes, you yourselves have come to be fed by us. For we also distribute grain, and our distribution is perhaps not worth less than yours. Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled for you. I join with wisdom in bidding you to my table. Okay, so Gregor of Nazianza says, Yes, you Egyptians have come with your loads of grain uh, for, to, to feed the Romans, okay, to feed the people of Constantinople. But now you're rendering to God what is God's because now you've come. You've come to the church. And now I'm going to feed you with something that perhaps is not little. Okay, so the understatement of God's word. And then Augustine's sermon 113a. St. Augustine preaches, Just as Caesar seeks his image in your coin, so God seeks his image in your character. Give back to Caesar, he says, what belongs to Caesar. What does Caesar look for from you? His image. What does God look for from you? His image. But Caesar's image is on a coin. God's image is in you. If ever you lose a coin, you moan and groan because you've lost Caesar's image. When you worship an idol, do you not moan and groan because you are injuring God's image in you? Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.